All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording again today at the Bearsville Theater Complex in Woodstock, New York. Thank you, Bearsville. Always happy to be here. And don't worry, I'm joined as usual by my podcast co-parent, Father of the Year. <laughs> How's our baby doing? <laughs> How is our baby doing? Doing well. Daddy. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is your guy. Your guy belongs to all of us. He's just the, the general father. That sort of sounds very, like, godly. Well, look. It you know, does. If, if yes. the shoe fits, don't be modest. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello. That that was a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm in a generous mood. I'm in a generous mood. I woke up, the birds were singing, the sun was shining. I had my Wheaties. I actually did have Wheaties. And uh, <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> well, I'm a secret fan of uh, grape nuts. <laughs> okay. Well, that's sort of perfect. You're now you're going to think I'm lying, but it's it's true. I had a Wheaties grape nuts mix. Aha! <laughs> I mean, you need the extra crunch, right? Of course. You need that texture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's something about grape nuts that when you finish a bowl of grape nuts, the amount of work that goes into it makes you feel like you've really achieved something. <laughs> That's right. It's a breakfast and a workout. Yes. <laughs> I think as I was eating my grape nuts, I was actually getting rid of whatever wrinkles I've developed on my face over That's the years. That's right. They were all smoothing out as I did my jaw exercises. Um, oh, boy. We are off topic again. Settling down. How are you? Everything's good here in Rutherford, New Jersey. We're also getting some very nice weather. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to enjoying that. Um, for all you Michael Chauvin Dalton fans, you now know exactly where he lives in New Jersey. So <laughs> if you. <laughs> well, I guess we'll know what kind of fans we have, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> Dedicated. That's right. All right. I guess we have to talk about the show, which I'm, I'm happy to do because I really enjoyed this yes. episode. So today's guest, I, I mean, after that intro, it's like. <laughs> Talk about a hard pivot. Today's, yes. today's guest was uh, the photographer, really interesting artist, Ron Jude. And I love talking to Ron. It was definitely, you tell me your thoughts, Michael, but it was definitely for me, mm -hmm. you know, a little different because Ron is a real conceptual artist. And, yes. you know, so, you know, even though in some ways some of his work feels very traditional, his process is very conceptual, and he's just an absolute concept first, go out and try and put the puzzle pieces together type of artist. And so Absolutely. it was really interesting having a conversation with someone like that. Yeah, exactly. And that balance between making these what sometimes look like more traditional photographs uh, and then his approach, which you talk about in depth, of this 
removing context and trying to represent things without sentimentality. Uh, that is so interesting. Yeah. The, he takes things out of context. He uses, I mean, he's someone who is using archival work, um, which is very popular right now. He was sort of on the the beginning um, of that wave trend mm. and did some really interesting work. It's It's so funny. He's also has a project where he uses found photos, but they just happen to be found photos that he made when he was young mm. and then just totally taking yes. them out of context. And he sort of plays around a lot with the concept of narrative and truth. And anyway, it, it was really fun. And he has a very long intro, as we joked around about a little bit last week on Alex episode. So oh, yes. I don't yes, think yes. I speak for the first about 15 minutes. So <laughs> don't be alarmed. You people. didn't have to. I'm there. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm no, just listening. You, he, you know, Ron is very comfortable talking about the journey and the process and everything and which was fantastic. Yeah. You know, you just kind of sit back and listen. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he's really in command of sort of his ideas about his work and photography, and, and it was a real joy. Anyway, well, we have really babbled as usual, so why don't we get to it? Um, <laughs> Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure, and here is your conversation with Ron Jude. Ron Jude, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. Thank you for having me on today. This is great. Yeah, I'm really psyched that we worked this out. Uh, as you know, everyone gets to talk about their childhood on this podcast. Starts with a little bit of that. So if you could um, just give us your uh, origin story um, and take as much time as you want, that would be great. Okay. Yeah, the origin story. So it's it's a bit it's a bit meandering for sure. Um, I was born in Southern California. Uh, just outside of Los Angeles, and my family moved to the desert, a place called Apple Valley, not too long after that. And this that becomes relevant to the work um, if we if we get into talking about Lago at all. But that that location and those uh, early years in the desert in Southern California were interestingly formative years uh, in terms of some of my sort of uh, out, you know like outlook on the world. When I was uh, just about five years old, we moved to uh, a very small town in central Idaho called McCall, which was at the time a mill town uh, for my uh, dad to take a job there. And um, I spent you know, the rest of my childhood there in central Idaho, which uh, also became a, a pretty profoundly important thing to me, both in terms of my perspective on the world as well as you know, a lot of the work that I would do in the, from about 1998 to 2012. Um, so that became a pretty important uh, touchstone for me. I went to university uh, at the nearest university to where I lived. I, I wasn't somebody who was, you know, <laughs> look, looking to go to, you know, make connections or anything. I was really, you know, I was raised in a working class rural environment and, you know, the, the bigger sort of outside world and certainly the art world, I hadn't given two thoughts to. So I did know that I wanted to go to college. So I went to Boise State University um, in Boise, Idaho. 
And because I did have a, a passing interest in photography, I had a camera when I was uh, a teenager and took a darkroom class in high school. Uh, I took a introduction to photography class at uh, BSU, my very first semester there. And that was my, my introduction to photography in the context of art. You know, up to that point, it, it was really just sort of about, uh, you know, the cameras and the lenses and playing around in the darkroom. But that first term of having photography in college, uh, you know, a big door was opened and I suddenly sort of understood the medium for uh, a much greater potential. But it took uh, several years and a couple of major changes to my uh, degree before I sort of landed on the idea that I actually wanted to pursue uh, a life in art. And so I actually, uh, at that point, after being a philosophy major, changed my major to Bachelor of Fine Arts. And through the really terrific mentorship of a couple of people um, in Boise, Brent Smith and Howard Huff, I set off on a course of being a photographer. After undergraduate school, um, which took me five and a half years to get through because I was, you know, working a couple of jobs while I was going to school and I changed my major a couple of times. Um, I was very ready to get out of Idaho, not because I hated Idaho, but because I just felt like I was of an age where, you know, seeing something else in the world seemed important. And so I found a, an MFA program in Baton Rouge, Louisiana was really just thinking about my life and what I wanted to do in terms of sort of an adventure. And I, what I wanted at that point was a culture shock, something, something that would sort of, you know, jar me. And so I accepted a uh, position in the MFA program at LSU in Baton Rouge and got exactly that. I moved from central Idaho to southern Louisiana, and I, I can't think of two more sort of radically different places in this country and spent a few years there that were extremely important, uh, studying with some people that I really admired. Um, I had a, a semester with uh, Andrew Roth, uh, who came in as a sabbatical replacement. Andrew is now a dealer in New York on the Upper East Side. And uh, that semester with him was uh, full of epiphanies and just, you know, the, the time that I spent with him and the things that he had us read and the conversations that we had uh, really, really opened up photography for me in terms of its broader connections to the contemporary art world. And at about that same time, I started a friendship with John Gossage, who I met at PhotoFest Houston. I think that's what it's called. Um, I haven't been there since then, but it was like 1990, and he was there giving a talk, and I was a big fan of The Pond, and so I sat in on his lecture and met him afterwards, and we struck up a, a, a great conversation. And I ended up the following December taking a train to Washington, D.C. from New Orleans and visiting his studio, and that became a really important uh, relationship, too. John really showed me a lot of work that I wasn't aware of, everybody from Joachim Brohm to uh, Volker Heinze in Germany. And from a visual standpoint, that was a really important moment in terms of understanding what else photography could be in terms of how to make a picture. So that was, you know, those were all very sort of important formative points along the way. After graduate school, I, I moved to Atlanta, which um, for no particular reason other than it was like the closest 
you know, fairly big city uh, to move to. And while I was there, I was really lucky to sort of encounter a, a really great community of photographers, uh, Const uh, Connie Talkin, uh, Stephen Shear. Uh, there were uh, great people living there at the time. I was teaching at the Atlanta College of Art part-time, uh, which is where I met Roe Etheridge. Uh, he was a student there at the time. Uh, we became uh, great friends at that point. Uh, Chris Farine was in the graduate program at Georgia State University, another place that I was teaching at the time. Uh, so there was all this sort of great stuff happening in the sort of mid-90s in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And it was just a great time to be there, especially as a photographer. There was a, a new curator uh, of photography at the High Museum of Art, uh, Ellen Florov. Jane Jackson uh, had a, a really vibrant gallery in Buckhead um, called Jackson Fine Art. And I, you know, it was like the perfect moment to arrive there. I ended up doing a show at the High Museum of Art with Ellen, did an exhibition uh, and a few group exhibitions as well as a solo exhibition at Jackson Fine Art with Jane. And it was, you know, I was teaching at three different institutions, teaching over in Athens at University of Georgia, uh, you know, lots of conversations with Stephen Shear, who's an amazing photographer. And, you know, it was this kind of perfect moment postgraduate school to sort of be a photographer and be in this community where a lot was going on and people really loved uh, the medium. I mean, I even, <laughs> this is kind of my, you know, um, brush with fame in terms of photography in Atlanta. You know, I saw Harry Callahan a few times walking around with his camera. <laughs> uh, I, I met That's Eleanor. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I met I, I met Eleanor at a Christmas party. She, you know, gave me some cookies. Harry's wife, yeah. Yeah, Harry's wife, Eleanor. And yeah, it was just like everything kind of fell into place. Like the move to Atlanta was totally arbitrary, and yet it seemed like it couldn't have been any other place. And uh, following Atlanta, you know, I, I got to the point where I, I, I'd been teaching photography in three different art departments for like four or five years. And um, I just, I got to the point where I didn't want to be you know, the guy just kind of hanging around forever, hoping that maybe somebody would give me a full-time job or, um, you know, and growing bitter as I got older. So I thought, okay, I need to, I need to move on. I need to keep moving. So at that point in like 1998, I moved to New York City. Uh, Roe Etheridge had moved there about six months before. Um, and so that kind of, you know, got me interested in the idea of going up there. And when I was living in New York, I was, you know, lucky enough to, you know, meet and have conversations with uh, Alice Rose George, who put my work on the cover of Double Take and um, a portfolio inside. Kim Caputo, who uh, was running uh, Blind Spot at the time, put my work. Uh, I had a, an image on the cover of uh, Blind Spot and Double Take sort of back to back. So all of these sort of great moments of, you know, what you would call like minor exposure at that point in my career were sort of, you know, pretty important to me. And it made me feel mm -hmm. like, you know, okay, I could do this. I thought I was sort of learning and was beginning to understand, you know, how to be an artist, even though, you know, money was always a problem. But I, I you know, I knew who people were. You know, I started to understand how the gallery system worked and how to get my work published. And so that, you know, I, I was just sort of in the trenches, living very, very poorly. But, you know, just at that point in my life, just absolutely loving being a part of something, mm -hmm. being a part of that community in, in, in New York and in the sort of broader photo community. After a year of 
uh, doing some editorial work in New York, which, you know, that's what Roe was doing. Roe was doing editorial work and just starting to get into some advertising and fashion work. And so I thought I would give that a go, sort of stop teaching for a while and see if I could make a living doing photography while continuing to pursue my career as an artist. And I did that for about a year in New York. And I was just starting to get some traction, getting more and more editorial work when I sort of realized I don't really like doing this. <laughs> this isn't mm -hmm. what I like. Uh, this isn't what I like about the medium. Yeah. Um, it's not that interesting to me. And, you know, if, if I ha had to make a living on the side, I realized at that point that, you know, teaching was probably the best option for me. It was the thing that I felt most comfortable with. And it kept me engaged with the medium on a sort of intellectual level that seemed important to me. So I took a teaching job uh, at Ithaca College in upstate New York. And I was there for uh, 16 years and, you know, had tons of uh, great interactions living in Ithaca and going back and forth to New York City. Really great uh, friend and colleague of mine, uh, Nicholas Molner, was teaching at Ithaca College during the same time that I was there. So we've, we've collaborated on several projects. Uh, Michael Ashkin uh, and Leslie Brack, both incredible artists, uh, were both uh, are, are still living in, in Ithaca. I kind of got into the trenches of teaching for quite a few years there, and um, although I was, I was still continuing to make work and show work, the, the career part of it started to wane a bit. I wasn't getting as much traction. I think I was, you know, the work I was doing, I was really kind of doubling down on the kind of <laughs> like esoteric nature of what I was interested in. And, you know, I was still doing things to a certain extent, but I wasn't necessarily, you know, the career wasn't arcing necessarily the way I wanted it to. In 2006, a, a really sort of important thing happened. I had a body of work that I was working on where I was uh, appropriating images from my hometown's weekly newspaper. And I'd been kind of collecting and working with these images for about seven or eight years at that point. And I, w I still wasn't sure what to do with them. And I had this idea that they seemed best suited for like a book. And I hadn't, I hadn't published any books at that point, so I didn't really know what that world was about or how to get that done. And I, I paid a visit to Andrew Roth in New York and, um, because he was, he was involved in publishing as well as his gallery. And he advised me that um, although he wasn't interested in publishing, that it was worth doing and that I should publish it myself and just make an artist book. That sort of gave me the sort of uh, confidence and determination to to make that happen. And in figuring out how to publish a book, which ultimately became Alpine Star, it was a, a really great experience just sort of learning the mechanics of, you know, how to get that done. Everything from the design work to uh, finding a printer, working with a printer. And then, you know, the hardest part, once you actually publish a book, which I know a lot of people who have self-published books have encountered this, you know, what do you do when 500 books show up at your doorstep? <laughs> the, the, the trick is at that point, getting them out into the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that became its own problem. But through that experience, uh, my partner, Daniel Miracle and I started an imprint called A Jump Books um, based on, you know, the idea that um, that was an incredible learning experience. And now we could actually help other people that we knew who had sort of esoteric 
projects that they wanted to publish, we could act as facilitators to help them get their get their work published. And we did that for about 10 years and published about a dozen books uh, by everybody from Isabel Everts to Nicholas Molnar to Michael Ashkin, Dan Torrip, Sean Records. That became its own kind of side hustle, going to the New York Art Book Fairs every year, um, being a part of that community, which still to this day, in terms of my experience in the art world, is the best community there is in terms of just the <laughs> sort of, you know, the generosity that sort of exists amongst the uh, bookmakers. The the stakes are lower. It's not quite as exclusive as the gallery community. And yeah, I've, again, so happy and fortunate to be a part of of that, especially at that time, that moment where suddenly there were just dozens of independent publishers popping up everywhere and all of the sort of excitement around the book form, like PS1, New York Art Book Fair, sponsored by Printed Matter, that that was a big part of that excitement, I think. So the Alpine Star was this weird project in a sense that it consisted entirely of photographs that weren't mine, so it was entirely appropriated. Um, even though I consider myself to be sort of a capital P photographer. It was uh, starting to get more exposure just because it was a book than any of my other projects. Uh, Printed Matter picked it up as one of their favorite books of the year and and sort of showcased it at the very first uh, book fair in New York that happened in the old uh, DIA space. And through that, um, I started getting into the idea of of the book form as a sort of viable way of sort of thinking about uh, my work. And so I, I, uh, the next book I did, I did with The Ice Plant uh, in L.A., a book called Other Nature. And then I, I did another book with them called Emmett. And it just started kind of snowballing. And those books just started to get more and more exposure. The Ice Plant had, uh, Mike and Tricia had great distribution through DAP. And so suddenly these books were, you know, really getting out into the world. Uh, at the time, Michael Mack was uh, still associated with Steidl, but because mm -hmm. Roe had a relationship with Michael Mack, uh, he encouraged me to send my books to Michael, and I did just as a matter of course, and without any real expectation around that, just to sort of share my book with somebody whose books I admire. And that uh, ended up being a very fortuitous thing because Michael was interested in my books and sought me out at one of the book fairs in New York and, you know, uh, basically asked me if I was interested in working with him. And that became a really fruitful relationship. I've now published four books uh, with Michael, uh, my last one just a couple of years ago, and a couple of other publishers as well, Super Labo in Tokyo, um, Library Man in Stockholm. Um, so book publishing for the past 15 years really was sort of at the heart of what I was doing. And all the while, at least since 2009, I've been working with uh, Teresa Luizzati uh, in Santa Monica. She's uh, been representing me and she's played a huge part also in maintaining my sort of role as an exhibition artist as well. So she's done a tremendous job of placing my work in institutional collections, connecting me with institutions uh, to do institutional shows. I've, of course, I've done a number of shows with Teresa in L.A., but I've also done museum shows that were due in large part to Teresa's uh, associations with uh, various curators. So that's that's been huge, too. So it's, you know, between the publishing and then having uh, Teresa represent me and then Robert Morat in Berlin, it just sort of 
got to the point where it felt like I was really doing what I set out to do. And, you know, in the beginning had no clue at all how to make that happen. But it, you know, like I tell my students, just by showing up and being present and being engaged and being tenacious about just knowing that doing the work is important, I think eventually you, you get things done somehow. So that's well, that's kind, that's kind that. of the the long winded, yeah, <laughs> the long winded bio is probably longer than anybody's ever uh, given you. Um, well, then you will win an award to be determined. <laughs> Going to find a mug. So I want to just rewind. I know you're out in Oregon now. Yes, you've wound up um, teaching. Right, I forgot that part. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, here I am. Yeah, I'm in I'm in Eugene, Oregon at the moment. Yes. Yeah. So I want to rewind a bit to. Alpine Star, which okay. you mentioned, and this project, because it's, it seems to me like this project sort of sets the tone for a lot of things that come after it. And sort of the most overt, profound thing about the project is that, as you said, the, you were using found photographs. You were using photographs that you'd pulled from the local newspaper where you uh, grew up in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get to a point where this is what you want to be doing as opposed to making your own pictures where you decide, wow, I'm really going to invest a lot of time in this project that doesn't utilize my own photographs. And I know you've talked a lot about what a picture can and cannot do and what narrative implications exist in a way that's problematic Mm -hmm. in an individual photograph. And so tease out a bit or talk a bit about this decision to all of a sudden commit to, to this project that's not your own photography and that there's a real philosophy behind this decision and, and how you got there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, just to give a little context to sort of how I think about the medium, even though I, you know, as I said, I describe myself as a sort of capital P photographer. My education consisted of, you know, really photography in the context of contemporary art. And so I've really always thought of it as being in dialogue with a lot of other things besides just photography. You know, some of my favorite artists, are, you know, were from the the pictures generation, people who were really you know, looking at and thinking about the medium, not just as a sort of fine art medium, but also as this sort of cultural force, uh, this thing that was interesting as a phenomenon and not just as a as an art medium. You're talking about Sidney Sherman or Richard Prince, Barbara Kruger, people like that. Definitely. All of those yeah. people, um, you know, looking at one of the most profound experiences I had as a young person seeing an ex- art exhibition was a Mike Kelly show that I saw where, you know, I'm, I'm encountering people who are using photography who don't really think about themselves as photographers. They see it as an interesting medium that Mm -hmm. um, operates in a very particular way and people respond to this medium in a very particular way and that that becomes the interest uh, that they have in in using photography and so that that was all they're not thinking of themselves as documenting the world or exactly coming from the tradition of documentary photography yeah and so that was even though you know all along i was just sort of you know i was making pictures i was a photographer but i always thought of the medium a little more broadly than that. And, I, you know, I had these sort of philosophical ideas about 
how photography worked all along. And then I, when I started looking at these images from uh, the, the local newspaper in McCall, Idaho, it was called the Star News, I saw something in those photographs that I thought could sort of sort of turn up the volume a bit on my own thinking about my own work. And, it, you know, it had to do with these sort of, you know, hanging narratives that I saw present in, in these photographs. And the photographs were of a very particular sort. They were images that were generated for mass distribution, you know, at, at least as mass as uh, a small town newspaper can be. Uh, but they were generated typically not by professional photographers, but by uh, writers who just took a camera out to make make pictures while they did the story, or even mm -hmm. people, you know, from the town who just sent images in, who uh, were, were sort of reporting on their their daily lives or you know events that they were involved in or whatever. And so there there was a kind of vernacular tone to the images, while at the same time they sort of existed in this kind of professional format. So they didn't particularly do a great job. I wouldn't call them, you know, photojournalism by any stretch. And yet mm -hmm. that's the context in which they, you know, existed. And that just kind of fascinated me. And the more every week I would get this newspaper in the mail and I just, I kind of kept track of the images that struck me as, as seeming to have this sort of weird stunted narrative uh, to them that I felt really kind of existed in every image. And I kept thinking about, you know, how can I exploit that? And so, it, you know, like I said, it was a number of years of uh, collecting these and thinking about them and trying to figure out, you know, how do I do this? How do I use these before I sort of settled on the book format? You know, I've, I've said this before. I'm actually, I feel really fortunate that that was the first book that I ever made because what it really did for me was it, it sort of really made me look at and think about and try to understand the structure, the sort of narrative structure of the book form, and particularly as it, as it pertains to uh, a certain type of photograph, in a way that I think if I was dealing with my own images, I would have been sort of favoring, you know, the concept that I was working with or the sort of visual, strictly visual aspects of the images. I think I would have edited things very differently. And that taught me how to deal with my own photographs when I turn my attention back to that and started making books of my own work. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, that, that was my interest in, in dealing with that material. That book is sort of the headline in a way is, is the way in which when things are taken out of context, they develop you know, entirely new meanings, wouldn't you say? Or oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And con and to to a large degree, context is what you know delivers meaning um, in an image. And you know, there's a kind of an alchemy that exists between images that get mixed together that forms new narratives. I think our tendency, our impulse when we're looking at photographs, is to uh, it, it's a narrative tendency. And I think ultimately, photographs don't do a particularly good job at fulfilling our expectations of narrative. And so what we end up doing is, you know, we embellish images with our, our own backstory, our own narratives, our own history, um, our own sort of cultural baggage. And I think if you can sort of take that as a device to use to sort of exploit those expectations, uh, photography can be a really sort of interesting thing to play around with not just as, you know, image making. I mean, it seems as though you've been doing that for a while, that you've you've done what you just 
described in many books, not so much in your last book. Right. But in certainly in a good deal of, of the books that you've made over the past 20 years. I mean, it sounds like this is coming from the philosophy major in you in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think, it, I think that's right. <laughs> what is it that's so compelling about that idea? Because, of course, that's what we do with a photograph. Of course, we embellish. We bring our own life to it. And, you know, human beings are story-centric. That's mm-hmm. why we're so susceptible to – I mean, we're so susceptible to the story. I, this always cracks me up when I'm starting to watch a television show or a movie, and the first person who we're introduced to, it's almost impossible to shake that person from being your protagonist, even if the film or television show doesn't ultimately want them to be the protagonist, just the fact that we saw them first. Yeah, we, we sort of understand and recognize patterns, and that's that's part right. of our sort and, of And you know, we're narr- desperate, right, we're desperate to create narrative. It's like it's hardwired into us. I think it's a, it's a matter of bringing some sort of order to the chaos of lived experience. It's, it's terrifying to be alive. And I think that's why we have this impulse is to give structure, to make it seem like there's some sort of purpose or thread through everything. I think that's what the idea of story is all about. And I think that's, that's what's fascinating about it to me. But you want to, you know, you want to mess with that. I think of you almost during that time of the trilogy that you made, and we can talk about that, Mm -hmm. Emmett, with Creek Line. But there's almost like, I mean, you're being sort of a provocateur in this space. I don't know if you've moved away from sort of more emotional work, because I don't know if you ever made work that way, but you definitely center yourself in a space that's really theoretical and conceptual. And there is there is an element of, you know, you sort of, it's almost like needling a little bit, the classic <laughs> photo world. I mean, do you see it that way? Did you feel that when you were doing the work? On the one hand, yeah, I think that's that's a fair sort of assessment. On the other hand, I wouldn't say it was in a, you know, antagonistic way. No. I mean, I've, it's definitely a, a world that I'm a part of, but I do feel like, my interest in the medium for a long time has been in its more sort of epistemological underpinnings. Like, what can we sort of know and learn and understand about the world through surface, which is basically what photography provides, is a a sort of surface understanding of things. What's what's interesting about not just the explicit things about an image, but the implicit things about an image, Mm -hmm. that seems to me where all the sort of fascination lies and how it, you know, really where it's it's sort of crackling and full of life is in that uh, the connotations that are made through photography. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about the trilogy? Because it is really, I think, quite fascinating particularly Emmett and another sort of way of using found images, although this time <laughs> they were your own, <laughs> right. which is really wonderful. But, Oddly enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but still, nonetheless, in a lot of ways, also vernacular, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I, I think Emmett has a lot in common with Alpine Star in the sense that they were indeed found images but they were images that I made uh, when I was like a, you know, in my late teens, um, a few from my early 20s, mostly photographs that were made prior to any real 
engagement with the medium as an art form. And so I was, you know, truly just fascinated with the medium of photography as a way to sort of look at and and record the world at mm -hmm. that time. And most of the photographs in Emmett which I sort of rediscovered in a literally in a shoebox at my mom's house in Idaho. Most of them I don't have any kind of memory of of making. They were so mm -hmm. long ago. And so in that sense I could sort of treat them as objectively as I did the Alpine Star images. Um I could sort of look at them and think about them in terms of taking however many, you know, 40, 50 odd photographs that have nothing to do with each other for the most part and finding a kind of thread to run through all of them and a structure, giving them structure, much like, you know, we going back to the idea, that idea of the chaos of lived experience and finding a structure for that to sort of give us a sense of cohesion and a sense of stability. And so I was, yeah, I was like, basically it was another experiment in just uh, working with images to find form. Are you finding form or are you creating sort of disjointed narrative? I think it's both. I mean, when I, when I say form in the context of a book, it's sort of like, you know, narrative form or yeah, okay. you know, the, yes, the, 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 arc, the arc or the structure yep. of the thing. Okay, gotcha. Um, but definitely still just, I, I think even more so than Alpine Star, I was really starting to engage a kind of thwarted narrative. And it's not all just philosophical for me. I mean, there's also a sort of fascination with you know, the idea of nostalgia and memory. And, you know, at the time, I'm literally in the middle of uh, working with the images from Emmett, and I see Inland Empire by David Lynch. And I'm so I'm thinking about these kind of people who play with cinematic narrative and structure mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and kind of turn things on its on their end and until they almost completely fall apart, but don't right. quite fall apart. And that, yeah. that's kind of what I was trying to do with those pictures was like, how close can I come to a total implosion and still keep us on the road here. These projects are completely dependent on, as we've said, I'll just say it more overtly, but these projects are completely dependent on the editing and sequencing. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I know a lot of artists for whom, of course, this is like, duh, right. Editing and sequencing, <laughs> very important. A body mm -hmm. of work, very important. But mm -hmm. you more than anyone I think I've encountered, there's almost for lack of a better way of putting it, and I know this isn't precise, and, and, and I'll say again, in some ways until some of your more recent work, but it's almost like anti the individual picture. Yeah, and I, th that's, I think that's really true. I mean, I, I, you know, when I give an artist talk, one of the things I talk about at the beginning is, you know, thinking about uh, a range of artists, but particularly, you know, somebody like, say, Louis Baltz, uh, mm -hmm. who, you know, will put a, a grid of, you know, 56 images together. And it's 56 in individual images, but it's also, it's a single piece, really. It's right. not, you don't pull one out and say, I like this one. Right. And so I, I think I've always kind of thought about this, you know, the a body of work really as the sort of the piece and right. not just yeah. a bunch of pictures, you know? Yeah, that's really important. I mean, I feel like underlining that, that's just so important because, you know, a lot of people are in that space, but you're really the at the sort of extreme end there. And I wonder if that's caused you any anxiety. I know you and Teresa have worked it out, but has that caused you anxiety or did it cause you anxiety at any point 
because it, it would make it hard to show the work. It certainly would make it prohibitive to have just a few pieces in a group show. Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest part is the group show thing. That's, you know, then then it's just a matter of, you know, I've, I've never felt like when I exhibit the work, especially, the, you know, the work of the past 15 years where the book comes first and the structure is sort of everything. I've never felt like I couldn't exhibit the work in smaller numbers because I, I, I don't think you have to put the whole book on the wall in order to get it. Right. You know, so it becomes a, a really tricky thing. Again, it's it's like, okay, how far down can I carve this before it completely loses its meaning? Right. And so that's, you know, that becomes an issue. And I'm I'm always more comfortable with a bigger space and a solo show or at least a group show that allows me enough space to really do what I, I need to do. Have you ever had a conversation with a curator who's wanted to show some of your work and said, you know, we'll pick three pieces and you're like, that's just not possible. It'll take the work so completely out of context. It'll lose all its meaning. You have to choose six or 10 or have you ever had that happen? That's that's definitely a conversation that I've had. I can't really cite a specific example with a curator no, because no, I, feel okay. like by, I feel like by the time it gets to that level, the sort of curatorial level, like... You know, it's, it's it's kind of assumed, and I think it's true, that most people kind of get my program, like sort right. of understand it for yes. what it is. And, you know, and Teresa, to her credit, has done a really good job of communicating that to people as well, mm -hmm. um, even to collectors, which is like, okay, we, we have, you know, like with Electric Line, for instance, we I created uh, sets of those that, um, you know, basically there are a number of pictures that sort of inform each other. And they can be, they can go out into the world in that form. Wait, make that more explicit when you say you've created sets. So is it, it's not a portfolio or? No, it's not a portfolio. It's their exhibition pieces. And I think there's like, to like a total of seven of these sets and they're not mix and match. It's sort of like the Baltz thing where like the piece is the set. You chose X amount of images and if you want to buy work, and I'm going to say this really slowly because I think to people who don't know this work, we've now mentioned this body of work twice and people are yeah. going to be like, what are they saying? It's Lick Creek Line. Yes. Um, is the body of work. Um, <laughs> and, and I have a problem saying L's, so I may have just made that worse. But are you saying that there's a set number of pictures? Let's say I want to buy work from Lick Creek Line and go to Teresa who's a great gallerist, I have to buy a specific five pictures or 10 pictures that you guys have worked out? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And there's, and, and there's, there's, you know, a, a couple of sets that have just a few pictures, a couple mm -hmm. have like seven. So it's, and again, it's sort of thinking of the work as context being the driving force behind the images. And each one is considered to be a piece. And I haven't done that certainly with all of the work by any stretch, mm -hmm. but the Creek line, we felt that was sort of important with that work. Wow. That is fascinating. I don't know really very many examples of, of that, but I'm all for it. I think that makes great sense. You've done so many projects that's a little tricky as far as trying <laughs> to fit everything, everything into the podcast, but I do want to talk about 12 hertz because, and we can go back to Rago or other projects if you want to, because you may need to in order to talk about how you got to 12 hertz. But 12 hertz is definitely 
very different. It's a real departure for you. So why don't you just tell people what that project is, it's your most recent project. And it's definitely, well, I don't know, it feels to me like it sort of raised your profile a bit. Not that it needed raising, so I hope that wasn't offensive. But it just, it, <laughs> no. it, it feels like that book sort of was all over the place. And by that, I mean that I saw it everywhere. And it was easier to do an exhibition for, for reasons I'm going to let you explain. But why don't you take it from here? Okay. Yeah. So it, it was a, a very intentional departure. As we've been talking about, I'd been working in the book form, you know, since 2006. And that was really sort of at the heart of everything that I was doing and thinking about and just sort of operating in the publishing world. And, you know, I'd gotten to the point by the time I, I got to Lago where the book was at the forefront of my thinking the book structure that was the that was the end goal that was what i was thinking about when i was making the work and in 2017 2 years after lago was published michael mack and i published a book called nausea which consisted of a a project that i did in 1992 and exhibited at the photographers gallery in london and it was the sort of you know the 25 year anniversary of that exhibition and that work had really kind of never seen the light of day beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of shows here and there back in the 90s, but otherwise, um, it was still a body of work that I thought was worth having another look at. And so I put together a completely new edit of that work. And uh, Michael w- was agreeable about publishing it. And at, at that point, I really thought I, I was feeling a little bit of book fatigue. As much as I have loved being a part of that, and I, I love actually digging in and making books, I, I, that process is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I'd been doing it to the point where it wasn't quite as engaging to me as it had been. And um, when I published Nausea, I thought, okay, that that kind of caps in my mind what I th- was sort of thinking as like a 25-year cycle of work. Going back, taking that early work publishing it, I kind of felt like, okay, this is a, this is a pause point for me. And I'm, I was getting just sort of restless. So I thought I I wanted to do something that was kind of a departure for me. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant. I missed thinking more about individual images. I missed, you know, thinking about exhibitions before a book. And then there were a bunch of other things going on at the time. My, my dad died. Trump was elected, which just seemed <laughs> to this day seemed so sort of baffling to me. And yeah, the world seemed on fire to some degree. All of that sort of added up to me just sort of wanting to reinvent things a little bit. And so I started this project. Oh, and I had just moved to Oregon. That was also huge from mm-hmm. the East Coast. Yeah. And I just started looking at landforms and uh, the sort of geology of the state and kind of thinking about um, humans and our place on this planet and, you know, certainly not specifically about climate change or anything like that. I, I never work that way. I'm, I don't do issue work. But I was I was definitely thinking about ideas that are sort of out there now, like deep time and, and all of that and how that could be represented visually and whether or not that was possible. And that's kind of how I always work is like I start with a basic question, like, is can you do this? You know, I never necessarily come to a conclusion or figure out that I've, you know, solved the problem. But, you know, the question is what drives the work. And so, yeah, I wanted to make 
work that you could take an image out and it could sort of do its thing on its own mm-hmm. terms, or it could exist in a larger body of work and still sort of function that way, but not in such a sequential structure. Can and, you describe what the project is a bit more? For oh, folks? right. Yeah. We haven't yeah. talked about that at all. That's <laughs> uh, not important. Uh, yeah. So I, I started by looking at basic landforms here in Oregon, things like uh, welded tough formations, lava tubes. Uh, the state of Oregon is has a sort of fascinating diversity of landscape. It's a, it's it seems like a pretty young place geologically speaking. So we've got you know obsidian mounds. I, I wanted to do, look at the kind of you know the raw materials of the planet and suggest sort of ongoing and constant change that f- completely falls outside of the human experience. And and I started looking at tidal currents, you know, the the waves in the ocean, marine breakers, and eventually folded into that uh, glacial movement, uh, fresh lava uh, flows in Hawaii. And, you know, the the biggest risk in my mind in doing this work, although I was at a point where I really didn't care, was, you know, doing black and white landscape photography, which, you know, when I was younger, I would have, if you'd told me I was going to do that, I would have been like, no way, that's, uh, and I'm living in the West and I'm doing black and white landscape photography. It seemed, you know, to really be flirting with some of the conventions of the medium of fine art photography in a way that made me super uncomfortable. But that was another thing I wanted to ask myself, which was, can I do this in a way that doesn't just sort of sentimentalize the landscape? that doesn't bring a sort of human narrative to the landscape and that still has a kind of like a weight and attention to it that is aligned with all of my other projects that, that, you know, the spirit of it kind of seems the same. So those, those were the things I was kind of setting out to see if, if, if it was possible. And, and you succeeded, right? Because they're not really traditional landscapes. I mean, there's almost no horizon lines or even sky. They're really tight on whatever thing you're looking at, whatever scientific, geological thing you're looking at. So they're in some ways quite claustrophobic. There's no real sense of scale. Yeah. And that's that was all, you know, part of the program and like conversations that I was having with, you know, like St- uh, Stanley Walakawanambwa um, was in Eugene a few years ago. And we looked at the work in the studio and we, we sort of talked about those things and how those became important, not to, not to anthropomorphize uh, the things that I was looking at, to sort of give a sense of, you know, a disembodied view through the sort of, you know, a lack of scale. So those, you know, as I did the work and I sort of picked up on these things and had conversations with people about the work, those became more and more sort of intentional and sort of built into the photographs. A, not just a lack of scale, but a lack of sense of place, right? Yes. I mean, we have oh, yeah. no that, idea that, where we are. Yeah. So, I mean, it was really, it was just, you know, capital E, Earth. Um, right. It was just not a mappable location. It wasn't Iceland. It wasn't Oregon. It wasn't Hawaii. It was, the, the that to me starts to talk about, you know, the human experience and how we map things and claim things. And I really wanted to have this thing step outside of all of that and just really be about the things that I was looking at. And of course, you were able to make, it made sense to make really large prints and have an exhibition. I mean, this was work that was just perfect for gallery walls. I mean, ironically, it is also a book. So you did not escape. (laughs) Was so, it much easier to sequence? <laughs> no, I have to say it was actually the hardest book I've done 
for oh, that reason. Be- yeah, because there's think, no narrative. Yeah, I was. it took me a while to find my way into it and quite a few false starts. This was the first body of work that I actually did exhibit before there was a book. Right. And Michael came out to LA and we we looked at the the show together and, you know, we both sort of expressed an interest. Like it would be an interesting challenge to see if this could be a book. Um, yeah. Although it, you know, it <laughs> seems to rely on scale. It seems to rely on so many other things that I don't usually incorporate in my books. But so that was that yet another kind of question and a challenge. Like, can this can there be a way into this in the book form? And so, yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. I had a, a tough time with this one. Well, you just can't get away from the book form. You're you're stuck. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's I have such an affinity for the book form also just and because And there's a hunger what, for it, right? Sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but there's a hunger for it from us, right? I mean, I didn't see the exhibit and there's a, the, a hunger to get to engage with the work and the photo book is the thing. I mean, we're not all able to, you know, See, ex- the amount of exhibitions I want to see that I miss is astronomical and thousands of times more than the ones I actually get to see. Well, that's always been a big part of it for me was, you know, I, I grew up in and sort of even went to school in, you know, pretty remote areas of the country. Mm-hmm. And books were always the way that I accessed work. That's how I, you know, and this is pre-internet too, you know, so it's like, that's how I knew about anybody really was through through books. And uh, as much as I love doing shows and I love the experience of seeing an exhibition and creating an exhibition, they're, you know, they're very fleeting. They're very and... fleeting. Very few people see them. And, you know, I, I can say, I'm sure you've had this experience that when folks come over to my place, there's books all, all over and it just leads to discussion. People just automatically pick up a book. Right. Start looking right. through it. I mean, my, my place is a bit of a hangout, particularly for my artists that I represent, but also for friends and friends in mm-hmm. and out of the industry. But people just immediately, because they're just piles everywhere, and they pick up a book, and then they want to start talking about it. I mean, it's fantastic. It's It's just wonderful. I have way more conversations about photography that way than I do going to exhibitions with people. We have sort of these brief conversations and that's sort of over. But there's something about sitting, you know, on the couch looking Yeah, it's a, a completely different uh, different dynamic and a completely yep. different way of engaging the work, I think. There's an intimacy to uh, you know, books that and also, you know, you you can take your time with them, you can mm-hmm. revisit them. Absolutely. Um, and I think all of that's really important and the thing that I love about books. So, it, yep. it, you know, it is hard to get away from it. And I feel so lucky that I actually get to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's another part of it, too. Well, on that wonderful note, Ron, thank you so much for being on today and talking about your life and your work. It's really been fun, fun talking with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me to do this. This is great. Thank you. All right, Ron. Take care. All right. Bye, Sasha. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 